From deep in the heart of the swamp, this is Gator Tales, the official podcast of the Florida Gators. Gator Tales is brought to you by UF Health, the official healthcare provider of the Florida Gators. Welcome to Gator Tales. I'm your host, Adam Schick. The chaos of spring is reaching its peak in Gator Nation as the calendar is about to be stuffed with more sports running simultaneously than at any other time of the year. That includes the hotly anticipated start of baseball season, with Kevin O'Sullivan's team garnering unanimous preseason number one status following their first national championship. On today's show, we'll hear Sully break down his 2018 squad as well as sit down for a weekly roundtable discussing baseball, football, and more with FloridaGators.com senior writers Chris Harry and Scott Carter. But first, when you win your first national title, it's understandable for it to dominate the conversation for quite some time. But to move forward, you have to turn the page, and that's been the focus for Sully and his squad. Gator baseball broadcaster Jeff Cardozo caught up with the head coach this week, and he began by addressing the challenges in balancing such a massive accomplishment. We spent a lot of time in the fall, you know, trying to embrace, you know, what we did last year, but also at the same time focusing on moving forward into the 2018 season. And um, this is a totally different team. We've got a bunch of newcomers and uh, we've got two seniors with J.J. and, and Nick. Horvath that have come back to school. We've got some talented juniors, and we lost some key parts from last year's team. So we're excited about moving forward, and um, obviously Friday night's going to be a special night recognizing last year's team, but at some point I would like to move forward and, and, and get ready for this 2018 season and see what this team can do. Every year we talk, open up the season, you're always learning things, and I think that's what's so unique about this game, and obviously you learn things to, to be successful last year. Are there some things you took from what happened last year that you can take into this year? I think the biggest takeaway is it's a long season. Mm-hmm. We started out thirteen and eight and got swept at Auburn. Come home and had to win an extra inning game at Stetson. I think nine to eight, and we scored. We scored four in the tenth and turned around and gave up four in the bottom of the tenth and we scored one in the eleventh. And then from that point forward, even though it was a difficult game, I think it that that game kind of defined who we were. We just found a way to win. We had nineteen one run wins as the season went on, and I think we went thirty nine eleven from that point on. So it's a long season. There's a lot of trial and error, and this year will be no different. Our pen is very young. I think the biggest thing for our pitching is to figure out who's going to bridge the gap between the starters, especially early on in the season when guys are on pitch count, and, you know, to get to Michael Byrne. You know, so you know, there's some things that we need to figure out. You know, we're going to be young, you know, at shortstop, at least to start the season with, with Brady McConnell, and we got some other newcomers. And like I said, I think the, the biggest thing is to get Brady comfortable at short. We have other options. India has played a lot of shortstop as well, and Deacon Lippitz played some shortstop, and he's looked good over there. And Blake Reese, we got four guys that are capable of playing the shortstop position, but Brady has been playing very well. And, and then obviously, like I said, we've got about four or five freshman arms that need to contribute. Um, in some very difficult midweek games early in the season because we played two midweek games for the first month of the year until we get to conference play. And then those guys are going to have to contribute when we start conference play. So we've got questions like everybody else. You know, I think this team is built, you know, very similar to last year. Where we've got three really good starting pitchers on the weekend. We get a guy at the back end of the bullpen that we trust, obviously, with Michael Byrne. And, but we do have some question marks. And I do think offensively we're going to be uh, a little bit better. Mm-hmm. And I thought we got better as the season went on last year. But we'll see, you know, 
we'll see how the season goes and we'll try to improve, you know, like we usually do as the season goes on. Well, you touch upon something I think has been so important to the, this program. We know how dominant the pitching's been and, and you know, hitting's going to come and go, but you guys have always fielded really well, always one of the tops in, in the country and, you know, that, that importance and you lose a guy like Guthrie and you think about Omaha last year, the play that JJ made to, in, in, against LSU, the throw that Horvath made. So there's just, there's so many things defensively that maybe people don't realize and, and that's what you guys have been such a good staff at, at getting these guys to buy into it. Well, I think what happens is, you know, from a pitching standpoint, people get excited about the velocity and the radar gun readings and, you know, and that's kind of the sexy part of the game. And then the home runs, a sexy part of the game and the offense and scoring a bunch of runs. But the part of the game that gets lost is the defensive part. And, you know, I think we all at times take it for granted. We went almost five straight games out in Omaha without making an error. And quite honestly, I think that was as much a reason why we won a national championship as much as any other. We had some timely at-bats at the right times last year in some key situations, and we had some dominant pitching. But some of the plays, you know, you know, Dalton Guthrie made it shortstop. He's running in the foul territory and diving on the warning track. And like you said, the throw by, by J.J. at first and the throw by, you know, by Nick Horvath. I mean, if we have a right-handed center fielder, that, that play's not made because he's got to do a 360, throw the ball second. And, you know, so we've, we've, we've been able to, you know, play really good defense. And when you do that and you, you limit the other team's opportunities to score and they got, you know, they've got to certainly earn those opportunities to score. It certainly, you know, bodes well for, you know, you know, for us, and it certainly did last year. And I guess it doesn't hurt when you strike out a bunch of guys too, and, and you certainly have the arms to be able to do that. And you know, you, you go from from Logan on Friday nights to, to Alex on Friday nights, and now you get to transition Brady into that role. And I think we all know that he, that he's made for that. And you, know, you look at the the mentality that Fiedo had last year; it, it seems like Brady's got that, and, and even more, he knows how to pitch on Friday nights. Well, certainly, and I think you know, Jackson moves from Sunday to Saturday, and I think. The biggest thing, and I've said this before, is we've been able to have some really good Sunday starters. And I think Alex was our Sunday starter for two years in a row, and we had a lot of success. And then obviously Jackson last year pitched on Sundays and had 12 wins for us. And now you got a guy, you know, like Tyler Dyson pitching on Sundays that, you know, arguably could be a lot of teams number one. So, you know, that takes a little bit of pressure off the first two guys. You know, if you split, you know, um, certainly that's not the goal. The goal is to win every game. Sure. But but if, if Tyler does what he's supposed to do on Sundays – and that certainly takes some pressure off the first two guys. And what did that do for his confidence, what he was able to do? And I know throughout the year last year, you talked about Tyler and how raw he was, but you could see that the potential was there. Was it more that he had to realize it was there? And obviously we saw that in that final game of the year. No, I think it's just a lack of experience. You look at his numbers. He didn't walk very many guys, but he did work some deep counts. And he had some very, very high moments. I remember the game against Florida State. You know, it was um, Cal Raleigh. He struck out to end the ball game, and we had four freshmen throwing that game against a really good offensive Florida State team, and we ended up shutting them out. But there's just the, the level of consistency, and I think all the freshmen find that. You know, you, there's, there's some really bright moments, and then there's some moments where they do act like freshmen. But I think with him in particular, he just had a lack of experience. And um, he's been a totally different pitcher ever since the Wake Forest game that he pitched us in the third game for the right to go to the World Series. And He's just taken off from, from that point on against arguably one of the best offensive teams, if not the best offensive team we saw all last year. And he's just been a different, a, a different guy altogether. And, you know, it, it's funny, you know, you know, in this sport and, you know, in any sport in particular, you just don't know when the light's going to go on. Certainly we want it to go on quicker than sometimes it happens, sure. but he's been dominant ever since. He went and pitched against Louisville in the second game and had a valuable one in the third and then do great. On the biggest stage he'll ever pitch at this level, 
and then went off to summer ball and has been a totally, you know, a totally different pitcher altogether. So I'm really pleased with his progress. He's thrown out of the windups, got a really good changeup. Um, he's, he's more of a complete pitcher at this point, And I think he's, I think he's got a ton of confidence. I think it's important that he gets off to a good start here, um, and builds off that confidence because I think he can get on a, you know, on a roll here. I think he could be, you know, one of, if not the best, you know, third starter in the country. Yeah, no doubt. And speaking of getting on a roll, you guys were able to do that swinging the bats. And I know last year, as you talked about it, there was a, a lot of ups and downs. I think only Nelly ended up finishing the year over 300, but there, there are those quality guys there. And Indy is a year older now. And you mentioned some of the other guys and, you know, Langworthy, I know you, you really were, were high on him last year. And, and after the, the injury, he, you saw what he could do at the end of the year. So there, there's a bunch of guys there that, that'll be able to contribute offensively. Yeah, and I think what people fail to realize, you know, Langworthy had the handmade bone, mm-hmm. and that's an extremely difficult injury to come back from in the middle of the college season. You know, Andrew Baker, who were really high on the start of the season, he had a handmate. You know, Nelly had surgery on his on his on his throwing shoulder in the off season, and JJ played with a, a bad left shoulder the whole year. And then Mikey Rivera has a handmate. So we've had three handmates on guys that were extremely valuable for us. You know, and then you know, and, you know, India had some issues with his arm, and he he was down for a while, and then obviously Dalton. He came back from you know from elbow surgery and then had the back spasms and had some different things. So we we had to juggle a lot of different things. And I think I've said this before, you know, Christian Hicks was extremely valuable for us. Played all four infield positions for us and filled in in spots where we had some injuries and did a great job. And then obviously when Mikey went down, you know, Colo, you know, did a really nice job filling in there. So we had enough pieces. But it certainly wasn't an easy going until we were able to get everybody back healthy towards the end of the year. So now as you go into uh, opening weekend here, are there some spots you're still trying to figure out? Hey, can some of these younger guys handle it? You want to see different roles, how they react? How, how do you approach opening weekend? Well, I, you know, we'll, we'll script it like we usually do. It doesn't always go as planned. But like I said, to, to go back, I think it's, it's, it's important for us to get McConnell going, get him some confidence going. And I really, really need to find the right spots to put some of these freshmen arms in the games where they can get some valuable experience underneath the lights in front of a crowd and, and get them ready over the next month before we start SEC play. And, and there's going to be some bumps in the road. There's mm-hmm. just no question. We don't have a veteran bullpen other than Michael. And with these guys, um, with, with Brady, Jackson, and and, um, and Tyler all being on pitch counts around the year, you know, you, I mean, you're not going to typically see them go eight innings. You know, I've got to be careful with them and get them going and build up their arms, you know, their pitch count a little bit. So there's going to be a valuable three outs, six outs in there until we can hand it over to Michael and not, you know, obviously we don't want to use him too much over the year and get him going as well. So, uh, so you're excited, obviously. I, I know it's been a long off season. Um, just, just so many things to go into it, but I think that's, that's what people have to understand. It's 56 games. It's a grind. It's the SEC. And I know we'll talk plenty of times throughout the year, but you know, the, the, those three games on every weekend are just so they, they get you ready. And I think that was evident towards the tail end of last year. Yeah. I mean, we lost 19 games, won a national championship. Yep. You know, you'll, you'll look up this year and, you know, hopefully we'll be in position again. But typically speaking, you know, the national champion, you know, they, they lose close to 20 games. You know, every year. So you've got to build off your success. You've got to learn from your mistakes and hopefully you can move the pieces around to put your team in position. And, you know, prime example is when Michael Byrne was moved to the back end of the bullpen in the Tennessee series. Who knows how many saves he would have had if we would have started the season that way, but I just didn't know. I mean, I didn't know that Michael was going to be our closer, but you tr- it's trial and error and you try different things and, you know, some things work, some things don't. But at the end of the day, if you don't try different things and, and have an open mind, then then obviously you're not going to get the most out of your team. And obviously Michael is one of those great examples of 
kind of thinking outside the box and taking a starter um, with starter stuff and moving to the back end and, and really looking at that position as one where he's got a great heartbeat. He's under control. He can feel his position. He holds runners. He throws strikes. And if you beat him, you beat him. Um, but he's not going to beat himself typically. Well, not many people uh, were able to uh, to beat you last year, but uh, I know that's uh, that's going to be good stuff. So, Soli, thank you, and uh, looking forward to Friday night. You got it, Jeff. Thanks so much. Basketball is often described as a game of runs, and the season can be looked at in the same way. Consistency has consistently evaded Mike White's team this year, with this week's results perfectly showcasing their Jekyll and Hyde nature. A dominant road win over South Carolina was directly followed by a numbing home loss to Georgia, and once again the Gators are left searching for answers as the season begins to wind down. To kick off our roundtable with Chris and Scott, we asked Chris what he made of this latest setback for the Orange and Blue. Uh, not a good look uh, by any stretch of the imagination. Adam, you're talking about 11-point lead with 10 minutes to go. Um, Florida was in a three-point game in Athens, uh, you know, 15 days earlier, and then went into this horrific sl- shooting slump and ended up losing that game 72 to 60. This one was 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 similar in the in how it melted down, except the the plays that Florida made in the at the end of the game. Uh, or, or didn't make versus the ones that Georgia made. Just stuff that's 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 not excusable. I can go. I can go one thing after another. We're talking about a it's about is a ten point lead with ten minutes, or excuse me, eleven point lead with with ten minutes to go. It's a seven point lead with a minute twenty five left, I believe, minute thirty, and then uh, uh, Georgia makes three three point shots in that last stretch, including two in the last fifteen and a half seconds, both by Yante Maiden. Uh, you know, Mike White was beside himself afterward. Um, whether it was about talking about uh, lack of communication, whether it's talking about lack of discipline, um, lack of toughness, uh, you know, a, a failure. I mean, he he said he said it best. He goes, we, we inbound the ball. We win the game. We make a stop. We win the game. We communicate. We win the game. None of those things happened. And these are things that they've been talking about all year. Uh, there was a sense that maybe Florida had moved on a little bit, had matured a little bit, had taken a step forward after that meeting that we talked about on the show uh, uh, last week, uh, they bounced back nicely against LSU and then carried that over on the, ro- on the road at South Carolina with a 24-point win. And then to come home, that's what makes it so disappointing, Adam. This is a fifth loss for this team at home this year. They got swept by Georgia for the first time since 1997. Georgia is a 5-8 team in the league. They've lost to Ole Miss, a 4-9 team in the league. That was a road game. They've lost to South Carolina at home. Therefore, in 19. Now they go to Vanderbilt this week. Uh, Vanderbilt is in last, tied for last place, but uh, Florida's won there well, once uh, since 2012. So uh, this is getting dire now because after the team thought that steps were made and progress was being made and some of the things that they've been talking about all year, that maybe it sunk in. All, all those things reared themselves again, and we can dissect what happened at the end of the game. Uh, do you foul with a three-point lead? Uh, uh, the defense at the end of the, at the end of the game for a, that allowed Maiden to get that shot off. I mean, inability to hit free throws. Florida missed five of its first six free throws in overtime. This is the second best free throw shooting team in the conference. So there's stuff going on in their heads. And above all, protecting home floor has always been a source of pride for this program. And uh, that's that's gone out the window this year. You're talking about losing five games at home. If they lose another one at home, and they play and they play. 
Auburn, the first place team, and they play Kentucky, which will certainly have its back against the wall when they come home for senior day. Uh, if they lose either one of those games, it will be the most losses since Billy Donovan's first season. Six, and, you know, conceivably they could they could lose them both, and we have to dig even deeper into the record book. You know, for a team with so many offensive weapons, one of the things that's recurred that's been really bizarre are these long droughts. And we saw it in both Georgia games, and it's been in a number of other games this year where we're talking you know, six, seven, eight minutes where they just can't get the, the ball to go in the bucket. I mean, given the talent that they have and the, the proficiency for scoring the basketball, what do you make of those extended droughts that, that keep popping up? It looks like stagnation on the offensive end. And this team, uh, and Mike White has said this repeatedly, it's a team that gets wrapped up personally in its ability to score. So um, you could tell Jalen Hudson didn't look like a confident. He played 22 minutes and didn't score. It's the first time he hadn't scored all year. He's a leading scorer on the team. And they, he gets in the game, and I guess according to Mike White, after the game, there was he was the, supposed to be the third option coming to, back to the ball. The, the goal was to put the – inbound ball in the hands of uh, Kayvon Allen or Igor Kulichev, who are both 90% free throw shooters. Someone made the wrong call and ends up in Jalen Hudson's hands and he travels. And it just, he just, he just had the body language of somebody who looked, uh, who looked like, you know, he was out of sorts and probably that had to do with the fact he, he hadn't scored. And that's what gets these guys going. And when they go through these long lulls at him, and I'm looking down the schedule here, I mean, there was, it happened against Florida state. I think it happened in the in the loss against um, to Loyola Chicago. Uh, it happened in South Carolina here. Um, it's just obviously it happened in Georgia to the tune of twenty or twenty one from the floor at one time. They go they go in the jar, and you know a, a lot of this is dependent. Like Chris Chios has really struggled the last few games. I mean he had three of the last four games. Um, he hasn't hit a three. I don't think in three games. Chris Chioza was on the floor thirty five minutes, which is probably about average for him. But the goal has been to to get him some uh, a little more of a breather, and he his legs look kind of worn out at the end of the game. He even missed two free throws in overtime when Florida was trying to to hang around in that game. So I don't have an X and O answer because I'm I'm not a coach. Uh, Mike White will address that, but I think his answers are going to be kind of the same that they have been. I get asked a lot, and I got hit a lot on Twitter, and there was a lot of uh, comments. You know, why is Florida slowing the ball down? And you know, in turn led to that drought. Mike White said he was. And he's just, he was afraid to go down there and they get, get a quick shot off. And Dante Maiden is going to be a, making a layup at the other end in the low post. Uh, Derek Obide is going to have another dunk. I mean, he was worried about all these things happening in case uh, Florida, you know, didn't try to be a little more methodical and get a shot. Well, all that stuff happened anyway. So, um, you know, he's going to have to revisit some things, I would, I would imagine, and figure out how to, what to do with this offense right now. But I'll tell you what, you know, <laughs> there's five games left in the regular season, Adam. They're at Vanderbilt, like I just said, never a fun place to play. They just won on a buzzer beater, uh, beat Mississippi State, which was very, which is playing very, very well. They did that uh, Wednesday night. Then they're home against, or excuse me, they're on the road at Tennessee, as good as any team in the league right now, regardless of what happened against Alabama last weekend. Then they're home against Auburn, which is running away with the league right now. Then they got out, and then they're at Alabama, which came here and won by 18 points, and with one of those offensive lulls that you talked about, and then senior day against Kentucky. So you're talking about four teams, uh, four opponents that are likely going to be in the NCAA tournament, or at least uh, when you talk about Kentucky trying to, they're going to have their backs against the wall when they come here. So Florida has really reduced the margin of error uh, in this home stretch, and it really makes the playing at Vanderbilt and winning their uh, Saturday night, uh, Saturday afternoon rather, um, paramount. 
You know, Scott, as we move forward with this new football staff, there's a process now of fans getting to know these guys a little bit better, and especially the ones who are new to Gator Nation who aren't ones who've been here before. And a couple of those guys, Sal Sunseri and Todd Grantham, they spoke to the media this week and really uh, previously have been enemies of the state, but they are now members of the Gator coaching staff. Uh, what, what did you get from them when you heard from them earlier this week? Two uh, old-school veteran voices, uh, Todd Grantham and Sal Sinceri, both uh, defensive coaches. Uh, you know, Todd Grantham's a defensive coordinator that Dan Mullen hired after working with him only one year at Mississippi State. Was so impressed with what he did with the Bulldogs' defense, uh, he decided to bring in the Gainesville. I mean, if you look at the stats from uh, a year ago at Mississippi State compared to the year before, before Grantham got there, that team went from 110th nationally in total defense to 10th overall. They were really good on first down defense, second in the country. Uh, all the the rankings across the board improved significantly. And, uh, Grantham and, and Sal Sinceri is a, another veteran coach. Uh, he just finished up a three-year stint as linebackers coach with the Oakland Raiders uh, with Jack Del Rio. And obviously that staff underwent major changes after the end of the season. They played their last game on New Year's Eve, and a few days later, uh, Todd Grantham's calling Sinceri to ask him if he wants to join uh, this staff in, at Florida. Uh, ironically, the two never worked together. They've known each other for many years. First, when Sinceri interviewed at Michigan State in the late 90s while Grantham was on Nick Saban's staff there. And, of course, they went their separate ways, and uh, but both have carved out long, uh, distinguished careers you know, Grantham spent 11 years as an NFL assistant. Uh, Sinceri has 10 years as an NFL assistant. They've both uh, been at big-time schools in college football. Uh, Sinceri's won three national title rings, you know, two at Alabama with Saban, one at Florida State with uh, Jimbo Fisher before he took the Raiders job. Uh, so, again, two accomplished coaches, veterans. It's going to be interesting to see all that knowledge and all that experience, what they can do with these young Gator defensive players. You got to remember, this is a Florida defense that returns nine starters. You're only losing uh, Duke Dawson and uh, Taven Bryan off the starting lineup. So they've got a young group of players to work with. Uh, they just recruited a new group. And uh, uh, the thing that stuck out to me most, Adam, you just listened to them. You just knew, boy, these guys have seen it all, man. They've seen They've worked with the, some of the greatest players that in the world, with Demarcus Ware and Julius Peppers, and they've also taught you know incoming freshmen. They both talked about Malik Langham, the guy Florida just signed. How excited they are to get him here and to work with him and develop him. So uh, if you're a player like CC Jefferson who came back for his senior year after kind of getting to know each of these guys, uh, you got to be excited because of what they bring their knowledge and their experience. I mean, you listen to them, you work hard, and uh, you, you you should improve as a football player. And that's obviously why Dan uh, Mullen brought both of them here. As you've been around these guys, and obviously you've been around Dan Mullen, you've been with some of the assistants now, what are you getting as far as the, the personality of this staff? What's that vibe like, especially relative to previous groups that, that have been here? The experience factor is huge, I think. Uh, you know, you're talking about, it's a good mix. So you're talking about like on defense, you've got Grantham and you got Sinceri, two guys who have been at it for, you know, 25, 30 years each. You got two really young guys in Christian Robinson, the linebackers coach who played for Grantham at Georgia. Obviously on offense, Brian Johnson is relatively young, but he's been 
a coach now for eight, nine years. He's only 31 years old. And then, you know, Ron English, uh, the safeties coach, is a former college head coach, a coordinator. Uh, Greg Knox on offense is a guy who's been with Dan Mullen for a long time, and he's he's been around the block. So I just like the, the combination of the experience with a couple of new guys to bring that energy with Robinson and Johnson. You know, I think Dan Mullen, you look at the staff, the word that comes really to mind first for me is just accomplished professionals. This group here, I mean, from top to bottom, they've got it all from, from the NFL experience to SEC, Big Ten, to some new guys just to who really can connect with the players uh, because they're not that much older than them. And I think probably most importantly, Adam, is nearly all these guys have some connection to working with uh, Dan Mullen in the past. Obviously, most or several of them came with him from Mississippi State. So there's a camaraderie there. And, uh, you know, a guy like Sal Sinceri, who's never worked with Mullen, but yet has a close connection with Grantham, who has. I think that's important for any coaching staff. One coach who will not be part of the staff is the guy that led the previous one, Jim McElwain. And uh, he's been out of the news for a while. And I, I think a lot of us thought that he may lay low for uh, may, maybe this year and then resurface at, at a smaller program down the road. And, and that has not happened. He is getting right back into it. And uh, we just found out in the last couple of days that he is going to be joining Michigan staff in a wide receivers role. So it's it's surprising us on a number of levels, Scott, first that he's back at it so quickly and that he'd be going from head coach in the SEC at a place like Florida to being a, a position coach that's not even calling plays. It's interesting the, the way these things work out. I mean, there's nothing official yet there, but all indications are he is going to join Jim Harbaugh's staff at Michigan. Of course, his time at Florida is so connected to Michigan in some ways because they, they lost the bowl game to him. Uh, two years ago, and then obviously opened last season with that loss to the Wolverines out in Dallas. And, you know, personality-wise, when you think of Harbaugh and McElwain, they seem on different ends of the spectrum. But one thing I've learned, Adam, you know, in the coaching world, all these guys are almost connected in some way. Either they've worked together, someone on the staff has worked with each other. Uh, and, you know, McElwain, it didn't go the way he wanted at Florida, obviously. Didn't go the way the Gators had hoped, uh, but at the same time, you know he's he's accomplished some big things as offensive coordinator, as a play caller in his career, uh, and most notably at Alabama, he's a guy that has you know coached briefly in the NFLs, coached at high levels in college football. So I'm like you, I was a little bit surprised. I thought maybe since obviously he's financially he's fine, uh, he's maybe a little time to take a deep breath and reevaluate his career. But again, uh, he's a football coach, and these guys, uh, they tend to rebound pretty quick. And uh, it looks like all indications are he's he's headed to, to Michigan. And I, I've read different accounts, and maybe he'll be involved in play calling, maybe not. But regardless, I, you got to think, if you're bringing a coach on with that experience, who is a head coach, who's uh, won as an offensive coordinator, won two national championships, I mean, I would think you want him involved uh, somewhat in what you're doing offensively, maybe more than just coaching receivers. So it'll be interesting to see how that shakes out. But again, I'm, I'm a little bit like you. I'm a little surprised that he resurfaced so quickly. And ironically enough, he joins the staff Michigan that is going through the same thing Florida is trying to identify a quarterback. And if you talk to Michigan people, that's the biggest problem that they've had under Harbaugh. They just haven't had the right quarterback to get to that next level and beat Ohio State 
things like that to be a, a championship contending program. So it's not unique to Florida. I know people get caught up thinking that it's you know it's it's just a, a Gator problem because it's what's been their reality for so long. But everywhere around college football, if you don't have a quarterback, it's very difficult to win it at a high level. Yeah, no doubt, Adam. And it's always magnified when your head coach, like Jim McElwain at Florida, like uh, Jim Harbaugh at Michigan, is an offensive coach. I mean, they were offensive coordinators. Obviously, Jim Harbaugh played quarterback in the NFL. I mean, he a great NFL coach in his brief time with the 49ers, did really good things. So when you when you have that background and for some reason your quarterback position isn't getting sorted out like you hope, like the fans expected. There's certainly going to be uh, uh, some uh, noise in the system. I always go back to that term that Ron Zook <laughs> like to use. That one just sticks out. Noise in the system, Adam. It's uh, very popular. Now there's noise in the system 24-7 with social media. But it's, it'd be interesting to see if that's somewhere that Michigan does improve on this year. And Florida, obviously, that's Dan Mullen's uh, top task, you know, uh, He's coming in here trying to do the same with the Gators, and he's got uh, some options there. Uh, we'll see if the storyline holds or folds in 2018. In the wake of National Signing Day last week, uh, so many stories about players who are going to have a huge impact and what we can expect to see from certain players on the field. One story that's a very different kind of story is the one that you wrote about Randy Russell. This is a guy that was part of Florida's early signing class uh, that was expected to do really, really big things, but it was detected early on that he had a heart condition that has disqualified him from playing football again, at least for the Gators. So, you know, an interesting story. It's it, uh, tough to read because you, you realize that this is a kid who had all this, all these dreams of playing at the next level in front of him, and in an instant it's all gone. But uh, talk a little bit about that story that uh, people can go read on FloridaGators.com. Yeah, I was so impressed by Randy Russell's. Uh... Uh, maturity. I mean, he's only 17. He's not going to be 18 until July. And the story basically is, you know, he's a recruit out of Carroll City High down in Miami, a defensive back who had a really good career. The Gators are excited to get him up here. And he starts classes in uh, January. And, uh, you know, they go through these pre-participation physicals. And Florida, fortunately, has resources at the highest level where not only do they put them through a standard physical, they also give them the the EKG heart test, which detects the electrical of the heartbeat. And then, of course, they do a little bit more here. Uh, they do an echocardiogram that takes a picture of the heart and the walls of the heart and how the blood's pumping. And, and you know, in Randy Russell's case, uh, they discovered that he has a, a severe heart uh, structure abnorm- abnormality and caught the U.S. staff uh, major concerns. Then they start uh, getting outside opinions from some of the leading cardiologists around the country and and they all came to the conclusion that it's just not safe for randy to continue playing football uh, and be asked to do what these guys you know have to do physically in training uh, and you know it, it, it was they had to break the news to him obviously his mom came up from south florida i'm sure it was a very difficult week and and now he's had a little bit of time to uh you know absorb the news you can tell he's still like any 17 18 year old he's still struggling with it but fortunately again he's got some good resources at uf he's remaining on scholarship he wants to stay involved with the football program in some capacity uh but it, it was a tough story to write and but it was an important story because he wants to be an advocate for them to be required testing of, of like he did and discovered him because you hear about these young athletes who are perfectly healthy 
I mean, Paul Silvestri, the, the UF head football trainer, said, you know, Randy Russell could go out there right now. He feels fine. He could go out there and participate in what they need. But if the heart starts acting up and he could go down on the field, there's nothing he could do. And uh, he's a high, high risk for that. So he wants to bring attention to this and let, you know, parents and schools, coaches, players all around the country be more aware of and hopefully down the road improve testing methods so other kids, you know, if they have this issue, perhaps they can get caught before it's too late. Yeah, I really encourage people to check that story out on FloridaGators.com. A, a different story, but an important story nonetheless. Um, looking at some other things going on around Gator Nation before we get to our PAT, specifically baseball, softball, softball, a uh, great start last weekend. They're already 6-0. and Kelly Barnhill just threw a no-hitter the other night. Uh, they're rolling along. And now baseball, the expectations coming in uh, very, very high for Kevin O'Sullivan's team. Unanimous preseason number one, coming off their first national championship. So the uh, the bat and ball sports are now underway, Scott, and, and seem to be pretty healthy. They really are. Tim Walton in softball, Kevin O'Sullivan in baseball. They have those two programs uh, running at a high rate. and. Again, it will not be a surprise if either team is is back in the College World Series. Uh, obviously, the Gators baseball team's defending national champs. They open the season Friday against Siena this weekend. And the, you look at Florida's baseball and softball. I mean, it starts with pitching. Uh, with baseball, you know, you got a rotation that includes Brady Singer and obviously Jackson Kowar, Tyler Dyson. There's not a better starting rotation in the country. But an interesting fact around this team is. You know, J.J. Schwartz, who people thought after his great freshman season, uh, he may leave. He's now a senior, Adam, and he's they named him team captain the first time that a Kevin Sullivan has named a, a captain during his tenure here. And J.J., all he's done over his career is drive in a lot of runs and uh, be really at the center of everything they've done offensively. So having a veteran like that back for his final year is not something really they expected uh, certainly the last couple of years, but here he is. Uh, and it's a, a big plus for them to have uh, JJ Schwartz around with his pitching staff. And then you turn to softball and I mean, Kelly Barnhill, what, what else can you say about her? I mean, she's won about every individual award there is in the sport. Uh, she goes out uh, this week and her first home start of the season, the first home game of the season throws a no hitter. So you can bet the fans are going to continue to roll in the, KDC show Presley Stadium as they always do, as you well are aware. They love that team. They love Kelly Barnhill, what Tim Walton puts out on the field. It's a very good product, and it's a team that uh, has all the tools to get back to Oklahoma City and, and maybe win another one of those titles. They've had a couple in recent years. So a lot going on in Gator Nation, but as we wrap up with our PAT, we'll talk about something that's going on all the way across the world that a lot of us have been captured about, and that is, of course, the winter Olympics. Uh, in my household, we watch the Winter Olympics all day, every day. I've, I've watched more curling than I can uh, care to, to think about, actually. But uh, when you think about the Winter Olympics, I'm curious for you guys, what is your favorite sport to watch during the two-week extravaganza known as the Winter Olympics? Uh, have the Winter Olympics started? <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm just joking. Uh, I'll be I'll be the first to say I'm much more of a summer Olympics uh, person. Than I think I think most people are for what it's worth. <laughs> um, but you know, over the weekend, I did glance at some of the the speed skating, and I even watched the curling just because it reminds me of uh, I guess bocce or shuffleboard. You know, which uh, living in Florida, 
uh, <laughs> you know, you see people play from time to time. So, uh, but without question, my favorite winter Olympic sports hockey, uh, you know, I go back um, again. I like to reference age a lot on this show, Adam, because <laughs> I've got a few more years on you. And it goes back to 1980 when the Americans pulled off that huge upset. That's the first real recollection I, I have of hockey because I grew up in the South and I wasn't around hockey and our hockey fans in my family. But I do still recall that uh, moment. And then later on in my uh, sports writing career, I covered NHL for several years and really grew to enjoy the sport and the people who play it and respect what they do. I mean, I've, I've always joked, like, when people start having the debate, like, who are the best-conditioned pro athletes, NBA, NFL, baseball? I'm going with hockey every time because, first of all, you don't see any fat guys in hockey. <laughs> Second of all, they have to do all they do while they're skating. I mean, that's hard. Of course, you add the pageantry of the Olympics, and you it's a little different now without the NHL players uh, in this Olympics. But I do like the amateurs and, the, you know, the action's usually uh, just good. It's just a different vibe than anything else you see in sports or in hockey. I mean, there's just a, a pride for your country, and the fans are into it in a different way than, you know, if you go to, obviously, your uh, regular NHL game or some kind of pro hockey game. Uh, so I, I'm going with hockey. Uh, but, you know, I, I, second on that, I probably would go with the the uh, the speed skating I think those are just some tremendous athletes too it's fun to watch them and what they can do around the uh, around the oval favorite winter olympic sport to consume uh I have to admit while I enjoy the cold weather to some degree having grown up up north uh I've never been skiing in my life huh. uh, just because it's I mean I, I would love to do it and uh, I don't know if my knees can handle it up my age now but I would imagine I would love a Love to be able to give uh, skiing a go, and I, you know, my my wife and daughter love watching the downhill events, but they also love watching the the figure skating. And when uh, you're in a house with uh, two females and you're outnumbered, sometimes uh, you have no control over the remote control. <laughs> and so I would sit there and I do, and I I gained appreciation for uh, figure skating, being at the uh, singles or being the pairs or what have you, and. Uh, you know, I, I did kind of enjoy watching watching uh, that with my wife and daughter. But if I had to pick one, I'd say downhill. Now, having said that, Adam, uh, I'm going to go back a little ways. And second, what Scott said about the about the USA beating Russia in 1980s. I mean, we're talking about a period you couldn't even watch the game. It was on tape delay. Right. And and you knew what happened before you watched it unless the, it still because I just remember everyone was just riveted to the replay of it. Just to see what happened, because you weren't you weren't allowed to see it. Only what ten thousand people that were in the arena in Lake Placid were allowed to to see that. So that's one of the great memories I have growing up in terms of um, do you believe in miracles and you know memorable moments in terms of great sport moments. Uh, so I, I would I would put that in the grand scheme of of maybe my favorite Winter Olympic moment of history, obviously. But the other stuff, you know, I can sit down and watch it, and I'll watch what my wife and daughter want to watch. For what it's worth, skiing is very, very difficult, and that's why yeah, I think my favorite. Oh, I, believe me, I understand. I would, and I, I'm a pretty coordinated guy, so <laughs> I, I, I think I could do it, but I would have liked to have tried it when I was younger. Yeah, it, it doesn't get any easier. Uh, so I, I think my favorite's probably uh, watching the downhill, just because I, I have such an appreciation for how difficult that is, based on the uh, the novice level that I practice skiing right. at. So. That's where right. uh, that, that's where I throw my lot in. But uh, I think if, I think of you downhill skiing and I and the the agony of defeat comes. To me. 
<laughs> it's just a lot slower than, than what they're doing is uh, probably the, the best way to look at it. Um, but anyway, a lot of Winter Olympic stuff going on. A lot of Gator stuff happened this weekend, especially. I know that you guys are doing everything you can to cover it uh, as much as possible. So follow at Gators Scott, at Gators Chris. And, of course, check out the website, FloridaGators.com. Gentlemen, thank you very much. We'll talk to you next week. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Adam. And that's going to do it for this week's show. If you haven't already done so, be sure to subscribe to Gator Tales in the podcast app of your choice, and please leave a review to help us continue to grow. With one of the busiest Gator sports weekends of the year on the horizon, be sure to stay locked into FloridaGators.com for all of your scores, updates, and news, and make sure to come back here next week as we'll break it all down in a new episode on Thursday. Until then, I'm Adam Schick, and I'll see you at the MAC.